0: Welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This second series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of the workplace. And this episode is going to be a little different from normal because today I'm getting the, a personal view of a really good friend of mine called Salome Gaillard, who I've known for about a decade. And what we're going to be talking about is her journey uh, since we first met to, to what she's doing now and um, how a lot of the experiences that she's had and the things that she's done can be good influences and thought provokers as we think about uh, the future through this pandemic and coming out of this pandemic. So I want to stress that the views that Salome is talking about uh, today are really personal views rather than the views of her employer. So hello, Salome.
1: Hey, Gray. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. Um, Let's get started with how we first met. So you and I first met a little more than a decade ago at the TED conference uh, that both of us were at, and I was really interested in the way that you actually got to go to TED, because your employer at that time, Arup, was a sponsor of TED, and I think still is a sponsor of TED, and they had a really cool scheme where as well as a couple of kind of high ups in Arab who went, they, also, they had this sort of lottery where you could bid, you could tell Arab why it was good for you to go to the conference. And if you won, they'd send you. And I think that's how you got to go. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, it's a long time ago, (laughs) Graeme, and I think normally you remember way more about that period than I do. But um, yes, at the time I was uh, working for an Arab international engineering firm, and I was still very young, and there was this call for people to subscribe uh, to this competition. And I think the question was just describe why it's you that should be going Uh, in less than 100 words. Um, uh, I like to use a lot of words, so I think what I tried to do was to um, sort of pour it in into a formula, literally, um, and I won surprisingly, and uh, yeah, I got to go to Oxford. It was at the time, and um, it was a very very special experience.
0: Yeah, Ted's Ted's an amazing place, um, and those of us that that have been, a, I think, a very priv- privilege to have done so so what happened after that was we kept in touch and we started working together and it was interesting really interesting for me at that time that you had a multi-stranded career so you had your day job as a designer at Arup but you also had a side business to do with data visualization with your friend Anna uh, called imaginary numbers, and you and I worked together um, within that. Or you did some work for us, including designing a book uh, that we did with Julian Treasure, who was on the first series of Surroundscapes. And as well as that, you had a really eclectic food blog <laughs> with culinary nerds uh, with a couple of other people. So can you talk to to me a little bit about how your work life was at that time and What led you to do all of those different things at one time?
1: Um, Yeah, well, almost just thinking about it makes me tired. (laughs) But um, maybe, maybe it's good to mention that my background is industrial design engineering. And I guess designers are or could be traditionally very broadly oriented. And as you mentioned, I ended up in the building sector at an engineering firm. That was not something I envisioned on beforehand. Arab is a super cool company uh, but at the time we were also trying to figure out what is the potential role of product design in the building sector and I was super young so um, I could do a lot of wonderful things at Arab and I was very much challenged but sometimes uh, yeah the challenge was a little bit less potentially and uh, me and my friend Anna we actually know each other from uh, lower school and we studied together and we were both very good at math and we uh, both love graphic design, so we just started playing around um, with numbers, but also the story behind numbers, and um, we always feel and still do that good communication or bringing across a a message, especially a message that is captured in numbers, is a very powerful and important thing and uh yeah we thought maybe there is something for us to do there and then you became a, our most important client i think very quickly and that allowed us to do some some great testing and we had lots of fun and i think we made a couple of really nice things but it became a little bit too much next to our also quite um busy day jobs so i think we worked on it for maybe a year or two and then we um we killed the company but it's also a nice thing to do and besides that obviously besides work you need food and we love a good glass of wine and good company um, and I had a couple of friends that were yeah let's say bragging a little bit about their the quality of their nose or the quality of their tasting skills and uh uh, I sort of took the challenge and we started to do all kinds of tastings um, because they, for example, said, I can taste the difference between ketchup from a glass bottle or ketchup from a plastic bottle because from a glass bottle, it's way nicer. So we th- <laughs> And they had many more examples like that. So I said, okay, let's do a blind test. That's how it started. And with food, as with lots of other, I guess you could call it mediums, uh, there's just so much creativity uh, you can put into it. There's so many different things that you could do. We, we had the most crazy themed dinners. We also introduced um, uh, the Elite Treat, because at the time we were all traveling a lot for work and for pleasure. And uh, we created sort of a subscription called the Elite Treat that you could subscribe to. It would be a food package of food and or drinks or tools for food making that were not available in the Netherlands because we were all living in Amsterdam, um, but that we would bring from abroad. And then we would be I would be in Ethiopia shipping like 150 kilos of coffee from the best coffee place back to Amsterdam, which was obviously always a drama, but very nice to do. And we, we would make beautifully wrapped packages as a surprise and we will bring them around and uh, yeah sort of hope that others would uh, enjoy um, the yeah the treats we will bring for them from from abroad so there there's just endless things that you can do both with data both with food and both yeah with with all sorts of um, um, materials or, or ideas at hand so yeah we we just use that as a as a way of Um, channeling our creativity I guess you could say and then uh, at some point work became way more interesting and also way more challenging and uh, I think uh, both me and Anna uh, put all or most of our focus into uh, our day jobs our normal day jobs
0: yeah that was that was fascinating to see that whole process and uh i likewise have always had kind of second businesses i've i've had a um business being a musician a dancer photographer graphic designer all of which have been little side businesses and like you they they kind of came and went as as the, my main job um came and went in terms of the demands on my time my energy my creativity and What's, what's changed now is that in, in my life, I have my main job at Blue Sound Professional, but I also have a couple of other um, what are now called side hustles. It's become a thing now. And that whole concept of a nonlinear work life where you don't just have your day job and then the rest of your life, but you have more of a, um, a flexible barrier between, between your interests and your job is i think something interesting that, that a trend that's that's um becoming more and more to the fore it's easier and easier to do this as the mediums exist to produce say music or blogs or videos or you know be creative uh, at the grassroots level and so i think it's it's interesting to talk about all of this because as people move forward I think the whole concept of what's work and what's not work is going to become much more um, much more elastic, much more flexible what What do you think about all of that?
1: Um, I agree, and I think that's on the one hand a wonderful development. Um, I think it's also very fitting to young people um, or younger people. Um, I think there could also be a danger to it. Uh, if if the sort of the, the boundaries between work and private are less clear, uh, it could also mean you're always working. And I'm not sure about how that is in the United States. But here we have uh, that as a very a topic very high on the list for employers and employees as well. That you have to be keeping a very close eye on your personal health your personal life your personal space um and really stop working at some point um it doesn't mean that you can't think about it or you can't read up but um now with us being all so connected and uh, people able to reach us reach out to us in so many different digital ways um i believe it's very important to uh yeah, to be very aware of your own boundaries and really create the non-working space as well. Maybe that's even more important than bringing creativity uh, into the work workplace or bringing bringing personal ideas into the workplace. Um, but yeah, it's it's becoming more fluid, and that could be a really good thing. But I think if that's if that's happening or if that's continue to happen, then uh, both employer and employee should be aware of that and take that into account. And um, working in uh, and being interested in complex systems and how everything is interlinked, uh, I've learned that uh, if you change one thing, everything else has to change a little bit as well, because otherwise the system won't fit anymore. And I think that counts as well for new ways of
0: working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And I think it also plays into the work life that many of us have now where we're working at home. So this concept of being able to separate your work life and your home life when they're occurring in the same place um, is, takes a lot of discipline and it's important, um, that kind of segmentation. So I want to move into your your time at Arup, which, as you mentioned, is is an international consultancy with all sorts of um, aspects to it. And we've we've had uh, Joseph Hargrave from from Arup foresight and innovation talk to us in another one of these podcasts. Arup, in general, is a company that that I admire a great deal because of the way that they structure themselves and. Um, foster creativity. And you were a senior designer um, at Harrop. And as a part of that, you did some really interesting and very different things over the time you were there. And one of them that I'd like to talk about, because I think it's really relevant now, is you worked for a major multinational corporation on helping them to connect better between different physical locations in that corporation. And um, I remember you saying to me at the time, it could be a better intranet system or it could just be a really good coffee maker that brings people together. (laughs) Yeah. And and that really, I still remember that today because it really (laughs) struck home. And as we're trying to structure work uh, where we're all physically remote from each other, I think your experiences there might be interesting for people to hear about.
1: Oh, that's interesting because it's, it's a project from a long time ago, and we were never able to fully see it through. Uh, but the, the challenge at the time was that this company was buying up a lot of smaller companies, and actually those companies, were they didn't really know uh, what the other one was doing. Um, so we thought of a sort of a knowledge network and how that could work across these different companies um what kind of information would have to be exchanged in what way um and yeah also not just pure knowledge or insider or information but potentially also culture um but i'm afraid there's not too much detail i can talk about right now also because we weren't able to um yeah to detail it and execute it um fully until the end unfortunately
0: that's fair enough with all of these projects um you know they're, they're um there's elements of them that that are, that are secret, but it's interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's one thing I would like to say, not necessarily about this project itself, but um, people might sometimes have the need to capture all the information available. And then if they would store that somewhere, then they would be feel like, okay, now we're safe because all the information is captured, it's stored somewhere. So we did a good job, but, I'm finding more and more that it's not necessarily about the actual information because the information changes so quickly these days, there's almost no need to capture it separately or you can't really uh, work with the stream of information because it's going so fast. I think it's a very interesting question but I don't really have the answer. Like, What kind of information or ideas exchange should there be or creativity exchange, I don't even know the right word that I should be using, but how how should we be communicating and what should we be communicating in order to maybe just do our work or to collaborate? What types of information are those? And um, I think that's a very interesting question that I haven't really thought through, but um, it's it's more and more pressing, as you say, in these times. Is it, is it enough to just keep sending each other dozens or sometimes hundreds of emails each day or um, is that just not doing the trick? I can send you the information but did you actually receive it? Did you actually feel equipped to do something with it? Did you feel empowered and energized to work with it? Um, for my for my current situation as a civil servant, um, working with the team, um, I'm actually worried about the lack of serendipity. I'm um, not to, the work speed is maybe even higher than normally. We're executing our program even faster than expected. Uh, but I'm worried now that um, in a couple of months or maybe in a couple of years, we will see sort of the backlash of us not being able to communicate in a human way, in a in a messy way, in a dynamic way. We may mainly communicate in a very efficient way. But I don't think that is... That is going to be the most important thing over time.
0: Yeah, that that's uh, that's really perceptive. I think, you know, that that coffee machine quote that, that you talked about, and um, I've talked in a previous episode about a company that even thirty years ago uh, invested in these um, these like cafes, not actual sit-down cafes, but places that people could could go and get a coffee and a snack. And the whole idea was that they'd bump up against each other and have these conversations that might spark an idea and you know change the direction of, of some work that's being done. And and that's that playing into that kind of serendipity idea that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe just to add uh, something a little bit out of topic maybe, but just because I was talking to someone about that today, Uh, So this is about the workspace, obviously, but what about the public space, the public sphere? What is the role of the streets and that part of the city where we're also supposed to run into each other and meet people and uh, look people in the eye that we are unfamiliar with? Uh, If we're losing that or if that function is not um, sort of embraced, facilitated and maybe even um, stimulated, Uh, yeah I wonder what what kind of effect that will have Uh, that's a design question also I I bring everything back to design that's because I'm a designer I think a lot can be solved with good design whatever that may be Uh, but yeah I think it's very important to to consider that how do we meet and Mm -hmm. how do we run into each other and especially especially people or circumstances or types of information that we were not looking for and maybe that we were even trying to avoid um, because, well, we all know about the bubble, so to say.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting question now where we're all wearing masks. It's difficult to see people's expression, difficult, difficult to connect. Another point you mentioned was about um, information and, and having so much information and actually, that plays back into imaginary numbers, because in the old days, data was difficult to get, and people used to talk about data mining, and I think that was a really good term, because it was like going down a mine and getting a piece of data, because data was difficult to get. And now people talk about data deluge, um, and just so much information, that it getting it's not the issue, it's making sense of it that's the issue, and that's where... Things like data visualization and even data sonification can come in.
1: Yeah, maybe something that is actually really brings a smile to my face. That I was when I was just at Eric, probably around the time that we met at TED. I was wondering and reading books on like what is the future of design, Uh, because up until the '90s, everything was more or less a product design. You would sell design and sell a product then the 19s were all about experiences and at the end of the 19s they were asking like okay what's going to be next and I found that such an interesting question because I could really not imagine what the next thing would be and then I read somewhere and I I can't remember the book I'm sorry Um, but the next thing would be the service of helping you to choose Mm-hmm. And that struck me because to me it sounded like such a different direction from products to experiences to choice. But it totally makes sense looking back.
0: Yeah. There's, because, there's...
1: There is, yeah because there is so much information and, uh, and it's really impossible to process everything. The companies or the people that help you to choose, or sometimes even without you knowing it, they are in a very very powerful position
0: yes that's that's a whole subject that we could rabbit hole we could disappear down around um for example web curation versus web filtering and knowingly having a curated experience versus not unknowingly having a curated experience but i'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about (laughs) one other project that you did at Arup and you did so many cool things but I think maybe the thing that you're best known for is uh, the work you did on 3D printing structural members and I'm particularly interested in the the influence that natural forms had in that Uh,
1: That's just because nature is such a wonderful designer so to say um, at the time, um, again, it's still Arab, a wonderful company. What they also do, because it's employee owned, they, um, they are able to uh, spend a fairly large part of their profit on um, research. So every employee can apply for a research fund with a proposal and often they get it and they just buy themselves time to work during office hours on their research proposal, which obviously would then benefit projects and clients, etc. And um, I was working a lot with my colleagues, structural engineers. I'm not a structural engineer, but uh, I was working with them. And it struck me that a lot of the design decisions being taken were uh, controlled or directed by the production, potential or possibilities at hand. And it just sounded so limiting to me. Uh, So I was thinking, what if we can start using new production technologies that would actually provide you with all the freedom that you could possibly want? And uh, that led us to looking into um, 3D printing or additive manufacturing. I did this with a couple of wonderful colleagues, by the way, I must say, Um, and we thought, okay, there's a lot of stuff you can print, chocolate and wood pulp and plastic, obviously. But we said, if we can think of the most difficult thing to do, and we make sure that we can prove that it can be done, then a lot of other things are possible as well. So at Arab, the most challenging thing to do, we figured, is to print steel structural elements. And so that's what we did. Um steel could already be printed. I mean, that technology was around since the 80s. It was just that no one really knew what to do with it. And uh, we just started thinking like, if this is the technology we have at hand, which is a metal powder being built up in very, very thin layers. And with a laser, it would be melted layer by layer on top of each other. It's additive, so it's the opposite of subtractive. What would you do? And the interesting thing is that where with traditional products, it would just be too much hassle to remove the material that you would not really need. It's the other way around. If you start printing, you only apply the material that you really need. And that's when it becomes interesting because how do you know what is the material that really has a function? And um, my colleagues could actually calculate that. And when we started doing that, the elements or the designs that were being created uh, were very much like what you find in nature. And thinking about it, it's, it's a very logical thing because they always say uh, in nature, material is expensive and form is cheap. And in our industrial society, it's the other way around. Uh, So this technology sort of helped us to make that leap into the way nature works. And the interesting thing is that is exactly what I'm also trying to do now in my current role, working on circular economy. But I'm sure we'll get to that uh, at a later point.
0: Actually, it's a really good good, uh, transition. I was just thinking that as you were talking. So during the particularly the latter part of your time at Arup, you, you were talking to me a lot about the circular economy and your ideas um and passion for the circular economy and a more uh, thoughtful way of of living really and and then you ended up as you mentioned uh going to work for the city of amsterdam in this circular economy initiative which is also interesting to me because as we have gone into this lockdown, it's almost like the world has gone into pause mode for a little while. And one of the things that's interesting to me is how we come out of the pause mode when the time is right. And I think a lot of places, I live in America at the moment, and I my perception of America is that they're just trying to come back the same way they went into it as quickly as possible. But I think some other places around the world and in this case Amsterdam is maybe looking at using this time of pause to to think more deeply about how we want to come back from it
1: I hope that you're right I hope that you're right about Amsterdam I hope that you're wrong about the states Um, (laughs) um, well let me let me let me first say this is that one thing that I think is very special about the current situation is that I believe this is one of the few times and maybe only the first time if we leave out climate change, that we're we're all in the same situation internationally. Does't mean the corona crisis, as we call it here, has the same effect on every country. Obviously it doesn't but we can at least all understand more or less what we're going through. I think that's a very special moment in time, actually, because it's something that could potentially unite. It doesn't always, as the last couple of months have shown, but it is a very interesting point in time. And furthermore, I do think we have a choice in what we do with the current situation. As you say, we're sort of at a standstill. Uh, What we can also see is that um, a lot lot of things become more clear. For example, um, international processes like international trade, but also closing material loops, sustainable solutions that surface and, and seem to be not as sustainable as we thought they were things become more clear, become more visible for for a lot more people. So that's a very powerful situation. Um, Things are not running as smooth as we thought they were for the past 10 years. So uh, that could be a great basis for a reset up to a certain point, because I don't think we are ready or capable of changing the entire economy or society, but we could make important steps. And I I think we should, because in the Netherlands we set goals to become fully circular by 2050 and to reduce uh, the use of primary materials by 50% in 2030. Um, A couple of years that seemed quite far away, but it's it's not that far away anymore. And we're starting to deal with the complex parts of this circular transition. As uh, one of our politicians said earlier this year, it's very easy to do circular things, but it's very difficult to do things circular. So it's quite easy to have a circular product or come up with a circular solution, but to make our entire economy uh, international trade, etc. to make that circular is a massive, massive challenge. And we see that everything needs to change a little bit in order to achieve that. And that is what makes um, this a bit of a daunting task that uh, it doesn't really require, I believe, massive shifts in how we behave or how we uh, live or how, but it's, it requires everything to change a little bit, more or less at once. And that is going to be uh, a challenge. And we have to convince a lot of people um, that it's an important task to um, yeah to tap into.
0: So I think uh, I'd be really interested. You mentioned uh, the, the goal of becoming fully circular and maybe even go back one step further and talk about the concept of the circular economy. Can you uh, give the people that maybe aren't so aware about these concepts, a really brief idea of what the circular economy is and what it looks like to become fully circular.
1: Yeah, of course. I'll try to to keep it short, but please stop me when I uh, when I'm taking too long. The circular economy is the opposite of a linear economy. The linear economy is more or less the way we behave at the moment. We mine materials, we produce products, we use them, sometimes for a minute, sometimes for a day, sometimes for a year, and then we throw them away. That's it, it's linear. The material is not used again, or it's used um, in a very, uh, how do you say, unappealing way, it's downgraded. It doesn't have the same value anymore as in the original product. This is um, an approach that is not future-proof. There are long lists of materials that will not be available 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. And we know that we are depleting the planet. So what we would like to do is to make this line into a circle so that when a product or material is at its current lifespan, we think of a new one for it so that it can be used and reused and reused over time Um, that's the basic idea i find it a very important addition that we as of this year are combining this also with the donut economy it's a methodology by kate rayward and what that does it's it's actually connecting the sustainable solution or she visualizes it as staying below the ecological ceiling, but above a social foundation. And that creates a donut. And between that ecological ceiling and social foundation, there's a sweet spot. And we would like to be in that sweet sweet spot. What we've started doing as of this year is to, to really connect the sustainability solutions or sustainable solutions or circular solutions to social questions and solutions. And that seems actually to be a very, very powerful way of um, bringing people in, maybe you could say, because uh, sustainability is fairly high on the agenda in the Netherlands, but it's not on the top of everyone's list. But if you can highlight that a solution is both sustainable and social, especially in current days, that is a very, very attractive proposition. And um, this is not something that we thought of on beforehand, but this is actually something we're experiencing in the last couple of months. Um, And I think that's exactly what we need at the moment. Um, It's a very powerful thing that this brings people together. It doesn't mean that it's always easy to come up with this solution that is both sustainable And social and obviously affordable Um, but if you set your mind to it it can really be done and um, our experiences is that it brings people together which makes it a lot easier to actually execute the plans and hopefully
0: change our economy hmm interesting So hopefully that'll provoke um, some of you to go and find out more about the circular economy and the donut economy. And we're now, we now up to the current day and the work that Salome is doing now um, within the city of Amsterdam. And I hope you can see that this, this kind of career trajectory, if you like, or, or uh, the life that, that, She's lived over the last ten years has been very diverse, very fulfilled, um, and and significant. And what I'm going to ask you now is a final question, Salome. Is with all of that experience, um, the you know the the topic around this uh, Surroundscapes series is around the future of the workplace.
1: Maybe I can be cheeky and and connect that a little bit to uh, something I would also like to point out that's related to circularity. Um, But I actually really enjoy looking at systems that might seem to have nothing to do with each other and sort of pick out similarities. Um, So coming back to circularity for now, um, what is at sort of the basis of achieving a circular economy is that we start looking at value in a different way or maybe to put it the other way around, we, we should be more aware of the things that are of value to us. And once we are aware of that value and we might even want to quantify it, the balance sheet the pros and cons um, might look completely different to uh, our current economic I don't know what you call it scorecard or balance Mm -hmm. because if we don't um, let's say if we don't value a tree or if we don't value clean air or if we don't uh, put a price on um, your kids being able to play uh, outdoors without you having to worry they're being run over by a car. If we don't put that into the equation, then it will somehow not exist. So if we only list things on the balance sheet that, that have an economic cost, a monetary value, um, we lose sight of so many things that are important to us. This is something that we're trying to change also as part of the transition to a circular economy because we know we can't otherwise do it. We have to be super um, honest about what is of value to us. And it doesn't only has to be material and also be non-material, social experiences, relationships, emotions. We have to bring that into the equation because um, the way we're looking at value at the moment is is very incorrect and extremely incomplete. And I think that is something that can also be applied maybe to the future of the workplace. And when I say workplace, I don't necessarily mean the actual place because I think that is something that's could follow from what you consider consider to be valuable uh, work. Um, But it has to bring a lot of different things together that it now often already does, hopefully. I think when you are someone that enjoys their job, it's not just because you're being paid for it, it's because the relationship with your colleagues, because you're proud of what you do, because you know that you make a difference, because you can help other people, uh, because it's just an interesting challenge. And um, I think it's very important to maybe be way more aware of that um, and to maybe put that into the equation of future work. Um, Something else that's being discussed, it's definitely not yet introduced, is uh, something like the basic income, uh, where we say everyone whether you have a job or not at the moment, but but everyone is actually doing something that is of value. You're not being paid to raise your kids, you're not being paid to do groceries for the neighbor, Um, but it's super valuable for society. And I I wonder if we start valuing that, not necessarily putting a price on it, but start valuing it more, uh, that might actually change the way we look at what is work and what is not. Um and um I would I'm sure that will say something about the workplace and our experiences. I'm just not sure what that will be.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. That's um those are really, really important thoughts in terms of um trends that are already um coming to bear in terms of the ability of machines, computers, systems to to think in the way of, of humans and are marched towards what's commonly called the the singularity. And maybe this pandemic, the effects on the economy, the effects on employment, um, and so many other things will accelerate that trend. And the idea of thinking about that mindfully rather than just letting it happen to us, I think is really important. So before we go, are there any last thoughts?
1: Um, Well, maybe one last thing that's... Uh, You remind me of by by your last words. I think if you look back at uh, innovations in technology, we've been able to travel faster, communicate faster, do a lot of things faster. Uh, I don't think it means, and I'm sure there's scientific research on this, that we actually spend less time. It just means we communicate more and we travel further. And I think the current crisis that is forcing us to slow down and to evaluate all these different aspects of our life and work life, maybe it helps us to make more of a clear decision what it is that we would like to do. And again, what it is that is of actual value. Is it, is, is it the most value to answer each and every email that comes into your inbox? Or is there another way of communicating, sharing, and um, uh, creating together? Uh, I think this is a a very interesting question, at least to me personally. And uh, I'd be very interesting to see um, if we get any insights that that allow us to make more um, personal decisions of our work and private life and the balance between those.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so though this has been a really free-ranging discussion. It's a little different to our normal podcast, but hopefully it's interesting to all of you. I'm going to ask Salome a favor, which is to send me some links to articles on both uh, on the circular economy and the donut economy, and we can put those into the podcast notes so that any of you that are interested in... Uh, finding out more about it can have some basic articles to look at. Thank you very much, Salome, for for your time and your thoughts. As always, they're fascinating. Please, everyone, um, feel free to listen to some more episodes of Surroundscapes. I hope you found this one interesting. We'll be continuing with some more uh, episodes on the future of the workplace. There have been previous episodes on that. There's a previous series on the future of retail and hospitality, and uh, we're doing some more series after this. So also you can help us by rating us on your podcast provider of choice, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are, at, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this. And please feel free to leave reviews, tell us what you like, what you don't like, people we should be talking to and interact with us this is an interactive thing so thank you so much for your time thank you to salome for your time and as always for your thoughts